Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. Although the Civil War ended over 150 years ago, echoes of that bitter conflict continue to be felt in many aspects of American life. Civil War, or Who Do We Think We Are, a new documentary film by Rachel Boynton, uses interviews with teachers, students, and ordinary citizens from around the country to examine how people in different places see the causes and effects of that war and why its legacy remains so powerful. The film opens this Friday at the IFC Center in Greenwich Village and brings Rachel Boynton to our show now. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Your two previous films, Our Brand in Crisis and Big Men, focused on Latin America and Africa. Is this your first feature film to be shot exclusively in the United States? It is. This is the first one where I haven't been running all over the hmm. world to make the movie. So yes. you were running all over the country. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we went, we went all over. We went uh, to Boston and Massachusetts and hmm. Mississippi and Tennessee and Washington, D.C. And I think that's one of the things that makes the film really special is just how broad the vision is. Hmm. Was there a particular event that got you thinking about the Civil War and Reconstruction? Yeah, actually, I I heard a podcast um, where there were a bunch of guests on the podcast shortly after the massacre at the in uh, Charleston, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. The white supremacist rally. No, no, that was 2017. Oh. This was two years prior. This was a mass massacre of a black congregation at a church. Oh yes, okay. Um, and by a young man who. Uh, posted pictures of himself with the Confederate flag online. And there was a podcast, a news podcast that was done in response to that event. Um, And it talked about sort of American perceptions. And one of the things that I learned from listening to that podcast was that there were still many Americans in lots of prominent positions around this country who vehemently believed that the Civil War was not fought over slavery. And that was a point of view that struck me as uh, strange and sort of shocking that there were lots of people who shared that view. And it, it, to me, it was clearly a window, a way, if you could look at that one fact, you could understand something fundamental about who we are as a country and why we were and still are so divided as a nation. Well, a major focus of your film is interviews with students and teachers in in both the North and South. Why did you choose to approach the subject from that angle? You know, when I first started this film, I was a new mom. And so I think that might have had something to do with it. I mean, I think I had a new interest in young people and in what we were teaching our young people and how they were going to be shaping the future because of what we taught them. Um, I also think that when you make, I used to look at films about kids as kind of a gimme, you know, like you would go and you would film with kids and it would be an easy way to get the audience to care. (laughs) Um, Almost like, uh, what do they say? Shooting fish in a barrel. But I, for this particular story, it seemed, this is such a controversial subject matter. And it's such a hard thing for people to face and talk about it. Um, Looking at it through the eyes of young people in a certain way is a way of opening up the subject and making it easier to empathize and easier potentially to connect with the people in front of the screen. And it's also a way to examine how the Civil War is taught in schools. Of course. Now, how many schools did you film in and how did you find those schools? Um, I don't know the exact number. 
because they didn't all make the film, right? I mean, there, there, were, there was footage from several schools that did not end up in the cut. Uh, but we filmed in many, many schools from elementary to middle school to high school to university. Um, and the way I figured out where I was going to film, we started the very first place we shot was an all boys school called the Macaulay School that's in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And my husband's family is from Memphis and through a family friend who had gone to Macaulay, I uh, got access to the school and they agreed to let me film a semester long class that they had about the Civil War and Reconstruction. And it's very unusual at the high school level to find an entire semester long class hmm. on that topic. Um, but I, I figured it was a way to enter in to begin. And it was a great place to start because the Ch Chattanooga was a key spot in the war. And there are many deeply entrenched feelings there about the war. It, you, you drive up the hill, Lookout Mountain, and there are still cannons in people's yards um, from the war. So it very much has marked the land and marked the people. And it was a great place to begin. Were most of the schools and teachers you approached receptive to the idea? Um, I don't, I don't know how to answer that question because I'm not sure about the most, um, but certainly plenty. <laughs> well, you had to get permission not only from the principals and the teachers, but also, I assume, the parents of, of the, yep. the kids All in the, the classes. Yep, you had to get release forms from everybody. There's no way you can shoot in a class without permission. Um, and you have to remember, when I started shooting this film, it was in January of 2016. So that was the last year of Obama's presidency while we were indeed extraordinarily divided, it wasn't what it is right now. And this conversation about race and history had not exploded in the way it has. Um, and so I don't think, I think if I were to approach people now with this idea, they might be a little more trepidatious because they might see it as being controversial. But at the time when I approached classrooms and schools and said, I'm, I'm really interested in the way this is being taught, I think you know, I'm a very open person and I enjoy listening and I, I give the people I film a real opportunity to speak. And if you watch my films, you can see that. So I think that made people comfortable. How different was the approach to teaching the history of the Civil War throughout the country by region and, and uh, the, by the racial makeup of the school's student body? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, when I first started, I thought I was going to find radical differences in the North and the South. I didn't. Um, I would say that the grand majority of history teachers in this country are doing their absolute best to teach history, <laughs> like history as it is understood today. Um, and so they tend to be factually based as opposed to based in sort of a lost cause vision of the past. Um, that said, there are places where the lost cause vision of the past still dominates the classroom. I, I initially thought I might try and seek out a classroom like that. I didn't because in a certain way, I, I didn't want to give the audience the opportunity. I didn't want to give them an easy target like to point to one classroom that was obviously teaching really bad history and say, oh, look, that person's really doing it wrong. I wanted to find more subtle differences to really examine the things that are being left out 
uh, normally in, in all the classrooms or in many classrooms, not intentionally, but because of a limited point of view. But many people are really outspoken throughout the film, and we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, um, are different textbooks used in, in different regions? I, I actually found, yes, of course they are. I found many, many classrooms, especially because of the use of the Internet now, are using original sources as opposed to textbooks or things that the teacher is finding on the internet and printing out. I didn't see a lot of just pure textbook learning, although I'm sure that happens. Remember, I was trying to find really good teachers, principally, because I wanted classrooms where the conversation was going to be stimulating and interesting to film. So I wasn't seeking out teachers who were just kind of pulling out a textbook and cracking it open and handing it to the kids. Well, all of the uh, the contentious talk about the 1619 project and critical mm -hmm. race theory probably cropped up while you were just finishing up on this film. It's been, I finished this film actually in 2020. It, it's taken a while to get it out because of the pandemic. Um, and so the whole conversation around critical race theory has actually come up well, well after my finishing the film. But I think it speaks to why the film is important and why anyone who cares about education should watch this movie because I think it really does open a window or an a doorway to broader discussion about how we teach and how we understand our past and that past of white supremacy and racism and how we confront it in a way that acknowledges the truth and lets us move forward uh, together. You show Dr. David Blight, a professor at Yale, saying this is about who controls the narrative. So mm -hmm. is your subject in this film, in a way, who gets to write history? In part, right? I mean, I think the fundamental question of who gets to be part of the story we tell is, a, is one we all need to be thinking about. Like, think about when you were in school and what you That's learned. too long ago. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's good, to, it's good to contemplate because it gives you a touch point, right, to compare with now. And I, I wasn't, I mean, I'm, I'm not ancient, but I, sometimes I feel old because when I was in school, we did not learn the way they're learning now. And I learned about white men in power, principally when I learned about American history. And during February, we would learn about some black people. And every once in a while, there would be a woman thrown in there. But it was principally the story of the people who had been controlling things. And those people were white men, usually of means. And that is not the only story of who we are. It doesn't include all of our citizens. So we really do have to figure out a way of reframing how we're gonna tell this story. But I suspect that if you went to school in the North, you still got a different version of the Civil War than you would have if you'd went to, gone to school in the South. Has the South written the history of the Civil War in a very different way than, than the North? Well, everybody got it wrong. So everybody got it wrong. Yeah, pretty much everybody got it wrong. I mean, particularly when it came to Reconstruction, the period immediately mm -hmm. after the war. Everybody, North and South, just completely ignored Reconstruction. They, because it was, um, you know, it was broadly described as a time when black people took over and things got out of control and white people 
eventually. I mean, this is the Southern lost cause narrative. But even the North totally ignored black achievement during that time. The fact that public education in this country is largely because black people made it happen during Reconstruction. Um, so that part of the story was massively understood North and misunderstood North and South. Um, the South had a vested interest immediately after the war in saving face and feeling proud. And so just like anybody who comes out of a war and loses, they want to have some kind of understanding of why they suffered this incredible loss. And so there was a narrative that was built called the lost cause myth, and it completely ignored slavery as the cause of the war and the liberation of four million people as the principal result of the war. Think about the fact that North and South, okay, it's not just in the South, North and South, we have failed up until this past year as a nation to celebrate the liberation of four million people as a national holiday. That makes no sense. That, that should have been a national holiday for, you know, over 100 years. It is a massive event in our history, and yet it has not been publicly recognized. So it, this is not just a Southern problem. This is a national problem. You're listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Rachel Boynton, whose film Civil War, or Who Do We Think We Are, opens this Friday at the IFC Center on 6th Avenue in Greenwich Village in New York. You spoke to two men uh, who, uh, uh, older men in Chattanooga, Tennessee, who mm -hmm. take care of the local Confederate cemetery. And they point yeah. out that they call it the war between the states, not the Civil War, and yeah. also the war of northern aggression. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, it's important for them to make that distinction that it's really the North that started the war. Yeah, it's fascinating. If you look at the number of names Southerners have for this war, um, it's it, I think you can probably look it up on Google and, and there will be a page of like all the names, the war of northern aggression, the war to prevent southern independence. The, you know, I mean, there are a ton of them. And it's all because it all has to do with point of view, right? It all has to do with the same question of telling the story in a way that um, allows the South to feel vindicated and strong despite this tremendous loss. So do they see the war as simply an invasion by the North where the Definitely. Confederate soldiers were Definitely. just defending Definitely. their homeland? Oh, definitively. They, they, they tell themselves a story that... Um, and I think this is important to understand when we are trying to understand our country, right? They tell themselves a story that um, this, and by the way, this isn't true. So, so let's get this straight. This is not based on facts. But they tell themselves a story that um, the North invaded the South, that the South had every right to secede, that... Um, they were defend the South was defending the rights of the states to self-determine. What's really ironic there is that, in fact, it was really the, the North that was more interested in 
in states self-determination at a certain point in the south i mean the, the whole history has been twisted for a very long time there, there were earlier uh, attempts by northern states to secede for other reasons yeah and and also there was the question of um fugitive slaves right and and would would the states be allowed to protect those slaves or requ required to arrest them once they came into their territory. Um, so this notion of states' rights versus national rights, I am not an American historian. I'm not the best person to speak about these issues. Um, but needless to say, they have been misconstrued and misrepresented over time. And the history that many people were taught in this country is not is not accurate history. Well, so, I, I was taught that the Civil War was about slavery. Uh -huh. uh, and Where were you taught? Where did you go to school? In, in Brooklyn. Okay. Uh, and that's, uh, isn't that a, a wide, that, that they say it wasn't about slavery uh, in the that South. That's a big difference, yes. But I, 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 I What do say, they say the war was about? Economic independence, states' rights? Yes, and taxes, Taxes, taxation, that yes, I mean, but it doesn't. And know, they don't see any. There was anything wrong with slavery to this there day. Are, there's a whole narrative. I mean, I'm not sure how much airtime we want to give to this, but there, there's a whole narrative about, um, you know, we treated our slaves well. Oh yeah. Um, slavery was good for the country because it promoted order. Um, you know, and the gave us cotton. The rights of people, you know, enslaved people benefited from slavery because it gave them protection and they were treated well. And I mean, just all sorts of there were religious arguments about slavery. They used the Bible to mm -hmm. argue for slavery. They Christianized them. But they, but they ignore the fact that slaves came here in slave ships. They were uh, captured and, and brought here against their will. Well, they ignore a lot of things. Mm. <laughs> and a, a farmer in Mississippi points out that his ancestors weren't paid for the slaves they owned after they were freed. He right. also says I, that the war was more harmful than slavery. So, uh, yeah, it's, it, but we have to remember, I think it's, it's we should be humbled here rather than simply pointing at the people in the film who are clearly wrong about their history, because there are plenty of people in the film who I think are clearly wrong about their history. We should all be a little humbled here about what each of us has failed to understand or see, because I, I think to turn this into a story where simply, you know, it, it's a question of Southerners being poorly educated is too small. I really think even liberal New Yorkers need to sit back and think about, you know, especially white people need to sit back and think about what they were taught, how they understand what America is, and how they live in their daily lives, right? How this system of white supremacy, because as one historian points out in the film, very brilliantly, I think, the through line of the story is not slavery, because slavery dies. The through line of the story is really white supremacy. That is the thing that didn't change after the war. And that is the thing that we need to try and admit and look at and take apart in our society today. 
but obviously being ignored in many cases. A white teacher in Chattanooga says that his students see the Civil War as something like a football game and that they root for the Confederacy because that's their team. Yeah. Well, I think that's an it's 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 fun to root for your team. Right. And it's easier if we tell a story in which our ancestors were heroic. It's easier if we can um, believe that our grandparents, grandparents, grandparents were fighting for a noble cause. But it's not true. The, the white students point out that most white people in the South didn't own slaves, so they see the wars having nothing to do with them. If, if, if their, their, their families weren't slave owners? Yeah, and I think, I think that's a very common feeling, and it, it relates to a, a lot. I think a lot of white people today feel like, you know, all this talk about white privilege. Well, I don't feel privileged. Look at how hard I work in my life. I don't have, I've worked really hard for what I have. Um, well, many you know, white people came to this country after the Civil War was over. Exactly. And so what does that have to do with me? My family wasn't here. Right. But as one young student points out in the film, I ask him that question. Actually, I say, you know, we interviewed this student who's from Estonia and his family came here very recently. Should he feel guilty as a white person or should he, he should he feel connected to that past? And this young black student says, yes, I think he should, because he's part of our country now. And I, I do think this is this is a story, the story of the Civil War unites us as Americans. Whether our ancestors were here or not, we are all American citizens. And it is our story. And we have to make it our story. It has to include all of us in the telling. You show a discussion group of adults, both black and white, in Chattanooga, who are trying to come to terms with the issue of white privilege. And the white people in the group say they don't see themselves as privileged. So how do they explain the disparities in education, income, and housing. Well, as, as, as the young woman says in that scene, I love that scene. Um, she says, you know, my, my white friends aren't comparing themselves to black people. They're comparing themselves to other white people. Mm. They don't think about black people. And I think that's very true. I think our worlds, once you leave the educational system in this country, once you're out of school, um, in, my, in my experience, the world becomes very can can easily unless you are very intentional about it. The world can easily become very segregated, um, and white people hang out with white people, and black people hang out with black people, and and um, a lot of white people aren't even conscious of that segregation in their minds. They aren't conscious that they aren't thinking about black people or their experience. And not just black people, by the way. I mean, we could have the same conversation about immigrants in the country, um, immigrants of color. Um, I think white people often aren't aware of how their situation differs from the situation of people who don't look like them. Another area you filmed in is Holmes County, Mississippi. Wasn't yeah. it the setting of the 1969 lawsuit, Alexander versus Holmes County Board of Education? Yeah. What was that yeah. case about, and what was the result? Um, Holmes County Board of Education was, you know, people usually think that American schools were desegregated because of Brown versus Board of Education. Mm -hmm. They weren't, because in that suit, um, the justices declared 
that desegregation should happen with all deliberate speed. And so there are two high schools in Holmes that are still totally segregated, one black, one white. How much speed did they need? (laughs) Well, it wasn't just the Holmes County School. It was all over the South and in the North, too. I mean, remember Boston, the bus busing issues in Boston and like the South was not the only place that didn't desegregate. Um, And. What happened was a lot of places um, in the South formed private schools and families sent their white kids. In Mississippi, they call them segregation academies. (laughs) And white families would send their kids to these segregation academies instead of sending them to um, public schools. Um, That that I'm I'm sort of getting ahead of myself, though, because those segregation academies popped up when the white parents didn't have a choice. Brown versus Board of Education occurred in 58, right? Wasn't it 58? I I think so. I think it it was 58. And um, Holmes County happened, what was it, 15 15 years later? 69. Yeah, So it's 11 years later. I think I might have it wrong. It might be 54. Yeah, 54, right. So it was 15 years later. I think it was 15 years later. And... It wasn't until students in Holmes County stood up and said, we want desegregation, real desegregation of our public schools, that the Holmes County decision forced public schools across the nation to finally, at last, in 69, to desegregate. Did the locals explain, explain this as a consequence of black people and white people living in different neighborhoods? Because um, when a black student is asked if she ever had a white friend, she says she's never been around a white person long enough to become friends. That's because her schools have always been purely black. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's, it's also a consequence of neighborhoods. But I think, I mean, even in New York City, our, our neighborhoods tend to be massively segregated. The, the United States as a country is still, in many ways, largely a segregated country in terms of where people live and where they send their kids to school and where they go to church. It's, it's, or, or synagogue or, you know, mm-hmm. our, our religious lives, our educational lives, our home lives are often racially segregated still. And religiously segregated, as you point yeah. out. But yeah. okay, but in the case of homes and, and similar counties, is the Civil War taught differently in the different schools? Um, I, one thing I noted that really struck me, um, and I was, I think the war can be taught differently and history in general can be taught differently depending on who the teacher is. So I really remarked as I was making the film on how white teachers, not all white teachers, but some white teachers would focus on a white narrative when they spoke about the Civil War, focusing on, you know, how slavery was justified, on um, the white slave owners, on white wrongdoing, right? And when a black teacher taught the Civil War, the black teacher would sometimes focus on um, black resistance, um, how black people freed themselves by running away. Uh, they spent almost no time on justifications of slavery because, of course, I'm sure they felt they didn't need to. And it was fascinating to me to see how even in the classroom, 
you know, our points of view can be very racialized. Like what we think of as important in the story can change depending on the color of our color of our skin. It's not just about North or South. Well, you, yeah, you, you talked about filming in a school in Boston, actually at the Boston Latin School, which mm-hmm. isn't that the oldest school in the United States? It is. It's, it's not just the oldest high school. It's the oldest school. Yeah. So how did the students there differ from the kids in the Southern schools? And were their views on race and racism very different? Was it slightly segregated school? Um, you know, I think Boston Latin as a school strives to be, talks about striving to be more diverse. And they have this system there where you have to test into the school. And I know there's been a lot of conversation at that school about trying to um, reach out to more students with that test. So there's a whole conversation going on there about diversity. Um, But just through my eyes walking through the hallway of Boston Latin, it physically appeared infinitely more diverse than many of the schools that I had visited. Um, I saw many schools, North and South, that were all black and all white. Um, And I think there is a resistance across the country to talking openly about this. It makes people uncomfortable. It really does. I mean, talking about, even saying the word white supremacy, it just, it makes people kind of cringe. And so there's a real resistance for different reasons, I think, on the right and the left, north and south, black and white, to to openly confronting every aspect of our past and discussing it openly. It's hard. It's hard and it's uncomfortable. Well, I wonder what the legacy of it is for people. Well, like me, in my high school, uh, Judy Lockley, uh, a black girl, was elected class president. So... Uh, and the school, the school was integrated. I, I don't know whether it was majority white, majority black. I think it was majority white. But people recognized that Judy was a, a had a leadership abilities. I mean, I'm, I'm, I would be interested to talk to Judy about how she felt. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if she's listening. <laughs> it's been a long time. Yeah, I would. I would be very interested to talk to Judy about how she felt about being held up as like the example of integration. And oh, well, we um, didn't think of it that way. I know, but I'm, but I'm sure you know. There's a common thing in in classrooms often where like there's the one black kid in the white classroom, and you're talking about enslavement, and everyone turns to the black kid for their mm-hmm. point of view. Like I, there. It, it is hard with this subject matter because, you know, on the one hand, we want to um, listen to black people. Right. But on, as white people, white people listening to black people. But on the other hand, you have to be really careful because people are not defined by skin color. There are all sorts of point of views. Um, and and people are people and they they have their own attitudes and unique points of view as human beings and oftentimes in this conversation that can really get lost in the shuffle you're listening to Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org it's Jim Crow freedom for all is what he said free to suffer Jim Crow. 
We're back with Rachel Boynton, whose latest film, Civil War, or Who Do We Think We Are, opens this Friday at the IFC Center on 6th Avenue in Greenwich Village. Is it opening in, in other theaters as well, Rachel? It is. It's going to be playing. It opens on the 7th this Friday in Los Angeles at the Lemley Monica. And then we're doing this tour with the movie. We're going to Boston. We'll be in Boston on September 22nd at the Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline. We are going to Washington, D.C. and Chattanooga, Tennessee and Jackson, Mississippi Mm. and Dallas and other cities as well um, to do these single night screenings. um, I'm going to be traveling around the country to all of these places and we're going to be doing panel discussions focused on how the Civil War and or how U.S. history and race and racism are discussed in American classrooms today. Another part of your film deals with how people see the Confederate flag. And in some Mm -hmm. parts of the South, it can be seen on homes and in cars. And it was uh, incorporated into the state flag of Mississippi. Um, You interviewed a Mississippi state representative who said that the state flag is a part of history and therefore all state institutions should be required to fly it. Mm -hmm. Um, Does he admit that it's often seen as a symbol of white supremacy? Well, he might admit that it's seen as a symbol of white supremacy. He just doesn't, he would, he would say in the next sentence that he doesn't believe it is a symbol Mm. of white supremacy. Other people might think so, but he certainly doesn't. What about black Southerners? He does not in any way acknowledge that point of view. No, I, I really, I think he is emblematic of a very common thing in our country today which is to not acknowledge the side that you really don't want to see. Mm -hmm. I think we have a problem in America today where we are so siloed by social media and, you know, what channel we watch to get our news. We don't have to listen to each other anymore. And so we don't have to think about other points of view. And one of the things in this movie that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to insist on actual truth about facts and simultaneously listen to how people feel. Um, Because a lot of times what the stories that people are insisting on, they're not about facts. They're just about feelings. They want to justify the way they feel. And so sitting around and arguing about what the facts are, it often isn't like the right first step. It doesn't get us anywhere because they're not willing to listen. They they are going to insist on on communicating how they feel. So I do think we have to kind of like, for example, you brought up earlier, there's a scene in the movie where there's a father and a son in a living room. And the father is talking about um, how his ancestors uh, owned slaves and how he thinks that the Civil War was a bigger wrong than slavery. And part of his view there is that um, he was a farmer and the American government gave him a loan. And when he couldn't pay the loan back, they took his land. And he, in his own personal life, feels like the government really overreached with his farm. And so he has, in his own way, taken on the Civil War narrative as a reflection of his own life. Right. It's a story about federal overreach, because that's what he knows in his own experience. It's not based on the truth. It's just based on he his didn't feelings. Repay, he didn't pay back the loan. 
(laughs) If I don't pay back a loan, I'm going to suffer as well. Yes. No, I I know. I mean, one can one can make an argument about how long. Well, but you can also make an argument about how long should the government wait Mm. for the loan to be paid back? How long should they hold out before they seize someone's land? Um, I mean, there's not one way of seeing that situation. But anyway, my point is just his narrative is very much about his own life and not just about the actual facts of the Civil War. And I think a lot of times when in this country, when people have very strong, vehement political positions, they're not basing their positions purely on facts. They're basing their positions on how they want to see themselves and what they need to feel in order to feel better about their lives. And a lot of people, black and white, this country has not been very good at representing its citizens and caring for its citizens across the board. Um, so the, all of this is to say that I, the, my attitude in the film was to go out and while insisting on truth, being open to listening to how people feel. And I personally think that that is a very productive attitude for moving forward and trying to find some common ground as a country, things that we can agree on together. But you also deal with uh, some of the history that's probably less well-known. You mentioned Reconstruction, but you you filmed the African-American Civil War Museum. Where is that located? That's in Washington, D.C. And it's pointed out that for the first two years of the war, African-Americans weren't allowed to join the Union Army. Did the North only begin to win after black soldiers were allowed to join? Definitely. I mean, it was definitely a huge shot in the arm to the Northern forces to have the participation of black troops. Um, They were an instrumental part in winning the war, even though, you know, a lot of stories, movies don't acknowledge that. You uh, have a professor from Howard University named Greg Carr talk about Reconstruction. How is Reconstruction taught in Southern schools uh, differently from uh, a black and white perspective? You know, I filmed with um, a guy for this movie. The, The interview didn't make the movie, but I filmed with a guy named James Lowen, Jim Lowen, who wrote a book called Lies My Teacher Told Me. He just died in August, um, But he spoke about when he was a teacher at Tougaloo College in the 60s, which is a black college in Mississippi, and how he went into the classroom. And he one of the first questions he asked his students, his black students, was, "Um, what do you know about Reconstruction? And the students in the room said to him, well, it was a time when black people took over and did everything wrong. And the white people had to take control again to put things back in order and make make things right. So the black students were saying that. Yeah, this is in the 60s when Mm -hmm. he was teaching. That's what they'd been taught. That was exactly what they had been taught in the classroom. And um, I think for a long time, that's what everyone was taught in the classroom, certainly in the South about what Reconstruction was. Well, we also had uh, the fetishization of and romanticization of, of uh, Southern life, uh, plantation life, like in mm-hmm. films like Gone with the Wind. There are tours yeah. of plantations. Uh, some of these old homes are being used as wedding venues now. Yeah, yeah. 
that's amazing. As as Kelly Carter Jackson says in the film, I would never go to Auschwitz <laughs> to have my wedding, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's an extraordinary thing that people would go to a plantation um, as a as a romantic venue, given what those places stood for for the black people who lived there. But it's another example of black stories not being considered as part of the story. And then there's a whole matter uh, still in the news of the removal of statues of Confederate heroes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, there's been a lot of controversy around it. You show the 2017 Charlottesville white supremacist rally, which was sparked by the removal of one of those statues. Yeah, that, you know, that moment for our country, I think, was an important moment, um, partially because of what it, it showed us about Trump in terms of his response, <laughs> but also um, just the recognition that um, these views in our country still exist in a, uh, in a way that can become that violent that quickly. Um, I grew up thinking that we had moved beyond, you know, uh, black and white tension, that we had somehow achieved racial equality. That, I mean, it was just a total myth. And um, it was a shock to me. Wait, where did you grow up? Were you? Oh, gosh, I moved a lot. I didn't grow up in one place. I mean, that's a, that's a whole other conversation. I was born in Denver, Colorado. My parents were divorced when I was nine months old. My mom raised me as a single mom, and she kind of couldn't sit still. So we, we moved all over the place. The reason I ask is uh, you were taught uh, a, a kind of a northern version Definitely. I mean, I was definitely taught a northern version of the history or Midwestern version of the history um, growing up, for sure. For sure. I didn't grow up in Texas or or Florida or Georgia. The uh, just last week, a statue of Robert E. Lee was taken down in Richmond, Virginia, but it didn't have the same kind of response, perhaps because it's uh, Virginia is is changing its political views. Oh, I hope that's the case. I hope that's why. I mean, I think I think white supremacists probably feel slightly less empowered right now because they don't have one of their own in the presidency. So, I mean, yeah. Finish your thought. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I just think that I think the tone of the country right now is different because of a change in leadership. In your film, white Southerners say that they see these statues as part of their heritage. Uh, do they say that the legacy of slavery has nothing to do with it? And are they unaware that uh, of the fact that these statues can be offensive to black people who live in the area? I think it, it, it cannot be understated um, how profoundly people see f- through their own lens and do not see through the eyes of others. And so it is a very common thing in the South to see those statues as a source of Southern pride. Um, first of all, because they learned at their grandparents' knee, many people, that stories about how their own ancestors fought in that war. But it's important to remember that our understanding of this past is not only shaped by the stories that we were told, it's also shaped by the stories that we weren't told right? The things that were left out of those stories. And the reality is that the story of Black Americans 
has not been fully considered the story of America. When I went to college, there was a whole department called Afro Afro-American studies, right? I never looked at that and thought, oh, that's my story. But it is my story because it's my country. And so this notion that black history is somehow that, that, that the history of black people is not the history of America. It's a, it's its own thing. I think that's also part of our problem. Uh, well, you're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large at WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Rachel Boynton, whose latest film, the one we're discussing, is Civil War or Who Do We Think We Are, which opens this Friday at the IFC Center on 6th Avenue in Greenwich Village. And then we'll be uh, touring around the country. And I hope that, Rachel, that you'll also be filming some of those panel discussions because that would be a continuation. Oh, what a of, great idea. I wish I had money for that. If anyone wants to film them, contact me. Because that, <laughs> it, it would be a continu continuation of, of the story that you're telling here. I think it's a great idea. I mean, I, look, the whole point of this movie is to get people talking to each other and thinking and, and, and asking themselves questions. And it's a film that is designed to get you arguing with the person that you watched it with. And, and it's a design to make you a little uncomfortable and to, to get you thinking in ways that maybe you didn't think before. That's my intention. You show one of Kahinda Wiley's works uh, of yeah. a young black man on a horse in the same kind of pose as those Confederate soldiers, uh, statues. Um, do you see his approach as a positive way to change the narrative? I think it's really important to, um, I think what he's doing is really important in terms of changing how we see what is heroic. Who's the hero? And what does the hero look like? Um, in, in that particular piece of work that you're referring to, which is a, it's a statue of a, a black man with dreads on a horse in the pose of a, a Civil War uh, hero or general. Well, many, um, of, many of the statues of the uh, Civil War, the white generals, uh, mm -hmm. were uh, put up by the daughters of the uh, the Confederacy uh, in uh, somewhere, I guess, during the, the end of Reconstruction, right? Uh, a way of of uh, controlling the narrative. Yeah. What happened was after the war ended, um, you know, the South had lost badly, and it needed to find a way to feel better. And the country had been torn apart and the country needed to find a way to come together again through its storytelling. And as David Blight describes in his wonderful book, which is called Race and Reunion, um, The Civil War in American Memory, uh, he talks about how what happened was the North and the South kind of together, but driven by the daughters of the Confederacy, they decided to focus on the hero heroism of both sides, the heroism of the Union white soldiers and the heroism of the Confederate soldiers. And by focusing on the heroism of those white soldiers, they excluded the narrative of slavery entirely. So slavery was ignored both as the cause and emancipation was ignored as the principal result of the war. And 
that was done by putting up statues, by writing textbooks, by giving speeches that promoted this idea that all the soldiers were noble and good and they had all fought for their own noble causes and that now we would come together in peace. And it simply erased the, st the story of black people as part of the story of the nation. Historical markers are another aspect of the story and you focus on a marker for the Clinton riots in Mississippi. What were the Clinton riots and why is that marker significant? Um, I love that piece of the movie. It's There's a historian in Clinton named Melissa Jones. She goes by Missy. And she has spent like the past 15 years, I think, working on trying to, uh, trying to understand the Clinton riots and to get this marker put up in her town. Um, the Clinton riots happened in 1875. Um, it There was a political rally and... Um, it was a bunch of what of black Republicans who got together to talk about their political ideas. Um, and they had this rally up on a hill and the rally got interrupted by what, what were called white liners, uh, white Democrats who came and started shooting people. And that event then, uh, sort of continued over the course of several days and weeks, I believe, where the white liners tr tracked down the people who had been at that rally to kill them. In those in days, the Democrats it. were the supporters of segregation. Yes, it, and the Republicans, names of the parties, and everything yeah. has turned around. Everything's turned around, which is sometimes hard. It's hard to keep track because I say black Republicans mm -hmm. and white supremacist democrat the, the essentially the two parties don't mean the same thing anymore as they used to um neither party stands for what it used to stand for uh at that time but what happened with this history was it was mistold for 150 however however many years the story was mistold and it was lied about and it was taught that it had been the black Republicans who had showed up with guns and terrorized the white people. Literally, it was flipped. The narrative was completely flipped. And the violence of the white Democrats was just erased in the history books. Um, and so I think for M Melissa Jones, taking back this story, admitting to it publicly, acknowledging it, is her way of trying to right the wrongs of the past as much as she feels she can. Um, what's interesting about that marker is it keeps getting knocked down. Mm. Um, they keep putting it up and it keeps getting knocked down again. It's been, I think today, I don't think that marker is up anymore. I think it's been knocked down again. It keeps getting knocked down by accident at night by somebody's truck or something. Uh -huh. um, so, you know, the struggle to publicly acknowledge that part of our past is still ongoing. We have pretty much no time left, but you also include scenes of the students asking you about your reasons for making the film. Uh, and did your perspective change at all during the process? Oh, I learned so much from making this film. Um, I learned so much about what I didn't know and how much I needed to learn. And I learned, I learned so much about... Um, 
about what had been left out in my own education. And Rachel, thank you so much for being on our show. Unfortunately, we have run out of time. Of course. And Rachel Boynton's film is Civil War or Who Do We Think We Are, which opens this Friday in New York at the IFC Center on 6th Avenue in Greenwich Village. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun. And that brings us to the end of our show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn for preparing today's interview. I'd also like to thank our live engineer, Reggie Johnson, and Leonard Lopez at large executive producer, Jesse Lent, for all of their efforts throughout the week. If you're new to this program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. And you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And there are links to all of our over 500 past shows at LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to write to me, my email address is LeonardLopate at WBAI.org. And as you may have heard, WBAI continues to experience major financial difficulties due to the pandemic. So we're asking everyone who isn't already supporting this station to go online to give to WBAI.org or to call 212-209-2950 to become a member. That's 212-209-2950. Why not support the programming that you turn to to learn about the latest important books or documentary films or a wide range of topics that you hadn't thought about this deeply before? Do it for us, do it for WBAI, do it for other listeners who aren't currently in a financial position to be able to support community radio. And uh, remember that WBAI is supported 100% by our listeners. We don't take money from foundations. So we don't run ads or call funding credits or whatever. One very helpful way to contribute is to become a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy. But however you donate, the important thing is for you to take that first step and make a tax-deductible contribution of any amount by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org. WBAI, as I said, relies 100% on listener support. So please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez large and from all of us at the show and the station thanks and i hope you can join us again tomorrow at one when karen j greenberg the director of the center on national security at fordham university law school will discuss her book subtle tools the dismantling of american democracy from the war on terror to donald trump we'll see you then